0: So we are continuing in Mark, obviously. We are getting closer to the end, and we'll get to the end on Easter morning. Um, This morning's passage follows soon after what happened, what we talked about last week. So I'm hoping for many of you, you heard the message last week, because it's going to flow right into what we're talking about this week. But I want to start with the story of Denethor, the last steward of Gondor. I'm sure you're all familiar with him, but just in case you're not, I I have my uh, helpers here are going we have a map to show you where Gondor's at. Our little map of Middle-earth. So and it's also on the screen in case you can't see this very well. But um, Gondor, the great city of city is right down there. It's at the south part of Middle-earth. It's the huge mammoth city that has withstood the evil kingdom of Mordor, which is right next door, run by Sauron, who sends his orcs and armies to destroy Gondor. This is very important. You need to all get this right. And so, the, the one time Gondor had a king and a line of kings But they had gone missing and they had put the steward of Gondor in charge. They were just running the city until the king would return while the kings had gone missing for centuries. So I think we're done with the map. So thank you guys. Thank you for, yep, yep. If you want to look closer later, uh, you could also look at the map I have in my office of Middle Earth. Um. So the stewards had been running the city of Gondor for a long time, but the crisis in the the Lord of the Rings, obviously I'm referring to J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings series, is that the armies of Mordor were coming, and the king was returning to his city. Aragorn, the true king, descended from the kings of old, but Denethor, the last steward, did not want to give rule back to the kings. He did not want to receive Aragorn as the rightful king of Gondor. He thought he could save the, the, the people in the crisis they were facing. And in the end, he, he, he gave over to the lies of the enemy and fell into despair and took his own life rather than trust the king could save the people. J.R.R. Tolkien was a believer, um, a Catholic Christian. And I, I'm convinced that the themes from Scripture work their way into his book. And this is one of the clearest ones I see. It's the same thing that's happening in our passage. Jesus, the right and true king, came to his city, his people, the Jerusalem, he came as the rightful king. And that's what we talked about last week, that Jesus entered as the Messiah riding on a donkey. And he took authority. He, he cleared the temple. But the ones who had been given charge of the temple and the city were not willing to yield to the Messiah, to the one that had come. They were going to hold on to power to the very end. That's what's going on in our passage today. So right before, our our text starts at Mark 12, right before this, I want to hit something from Mark 11. After Jesus had cleared the temple last week, um, that we talked about last week, and he had come in and cleared out and, and critiqued it, the the leaders, the high priests and his people, the scribes and the elders of the people, they all came to Jesus with a question. They weren't happy with what he did, and they came asking, "Why? Who gave you the authority to do these things? Who? Who? What do you? What do you? Where do you get this authority? Who do you think you are?" In essence, is what he's asking. Now, they knew where their authority came from. The high priest, Caiaphas, had been appointed by Rome. They had authority. The the scribes were the scholars. They were the Bible scholars who knew the law. And they had been trained under rabbis. That's where their authority came from. And the the elders were like the leading men of the city. So their authority came from kind of working their way up as, as elders so these three groups, together they form what's known as the Sanhedrin, the 70 who ruled over the people of Israel, the, the Jewish people at that time. And so they knew where their authority was coming from, but what about you? What, what gives you the authority? They knew Jesus was popular, you know, but what, what do people know of such things, right? They were the rulers. They had authority. And Jesus takes their question seriously. And it is a a serious question. It's also a dangerous question. How he answered, answer would affect what happens next. Keep in mind, the Sanhedrin a few days later would condemn Jesus to be executed. So this is a dangerous situation. Jesus responds with a question of his own, as he often did. He says, I, I will answer your question if you answer my question first. And what he says is, tell me, where did john the baptist get his authority from was was john the baptist message from god was he a prophet or was he just another another teacher on his own now this puts them on the spot because john the baptist had been very popular and and the people thought he was a prophet but he often criticized the same this these these leaders saying that they weren't doing what's right Similar to Jesus. There's a lot of ties between Jesus and John the Baptist. And so they, they confer among themselves and they say, well, if we say he's a prophet, then Jesus say, why didn't you listen to him? But if we say he's not from God, then the people will, will go against us. So, so they come up with a politician answer, right? Uh, we don't know. We Refuse to answer that question on the grounds that we may be in incrimin- the Fifth Amendment. You know, like they, they, def- they weren't going to answer that one. And so then Jesus says, well, neither then will I answer your question? In effect, Jesus is saying, my authority comes from the same place as John the Baptist. If you wouldn't believe him, why would you believe me? That's, that's effectively what he's saying. So he says, I'm not going to answer your question. What do you think Jesus does then? He answers their question. But he does it with a parable, which is the Jesus way of answering questions. Let me tell you a story. And so he tells the story that that we read. And it's called the parable of the vineyard, or sometimes the parable of the tenants. And we're going to look at the the story at first, just as a story, and the elements of that story, talk about the theological meaning of it, and then get into how it applies into our own lives. So that's the trajectory we're going to take for the rest of this message. So it's simply about a man who plants a vineyard, and he takes all the steps to make it a viable vineyard. He, he puts a fence around it, a hedge. He digs a pit to make a wine press. He puts up a tower. Um, I consulted an expert, Google, on how long it takes to, to go from planting a vineyard to being able to produce grapes. And, and Google says it's a minimum of three years. To, so this was a long-term investment. He invested a lot of resources, time, and wealth into setting up this vineyard. But when it's ready, he leases it out to tenants or farmers. The word can be translated either way. I actually think it would be better just to say tenant farmers because it's it's a very specific kind of tenants. So he leases it out to tenant farmers, and it doesn't tell you what the, the, the terms are but it's presumably they will do the work of farming and harvest the grapes, and, and then he will come and collect his portion, whether that's in grapes or maybe in the final product of wine, one or the other. So it's a reasonable deal. That's how things often work. right? He put his time in. Now they, they would do so, and they would share in the harvest. Well, when harvest time finally comes, the man is far away. He's a, you know, and he sends his servant to collect his portion of the harvest. But the tenant farmers don't want to give it to him. Instead, they um, beat him and send him away empty-handed. They, they, they don't want to, you know, they want to keep it all. So this, this owner is kind of a patient guy and so says, maybe they misunderstood or didn't, didn't know that was, that was from me. So he sends another servant. This one, they beat him on the head, strike him on the head, and they treat him shamefully. They, they somehow embarrass him. And he's also sent away empty-handed. Well, the owner keeps sending more and more servants. They, they even start killing some of the servants that he sends. And the ridiculousness of the parable, and this is an intentional thing on Jesus, is, is how patient the owner is, that he keeps giving them chance after chance to to make right on what he's doing. Um, And eventually, the owner comes up with a new plan. And here, I think, is the key line to the parable. Here's the answer to the question that they had asked. And the line is this, finally, or in another version, it says, last of all, he sent his son. So the son comes... And, and the owner is thinking, well, they didn't respect my servants, but certainly they will respect my son. He is my representative. In a legal way, the son could represent the father. And so, of course, they're going to treat him well. And what do they do? Well, they think, hey, guess what? If, if he's dead, there's no one else who will get the inheritance, and, and we, can, we, can, we can inherit it all. Now, I always kind of thought that that was, they're not thinking straight. And there's probably a a, some extent that that, that's true. Though I did look up in a commentary, and and Ben Witherington, um, he's a New Testament scholar, he says, there was indeed a sort of squatter's right situation in Jesus' day, such that if the only legitimate heir met his demise, it was possible for the land to be claimed by those who seized it. So they maybe thought they could pull this off, and they wanted to claim ownership for themselves. And says, so, so they kill the son and cast him out of the vineyard. Well, Jesus asks a question Will the owner let them get away with this? What then will the owner do? Will he continue to be patient? Well, he says, No, he's going to do two things. He will destroy the farmers, and he will give the vineyard to others. The, they went too far in that sense. Um, I was thinking about, I, I, I don't know the details, but I remember reading how in our current, because of COVID, they, they made it so that you're not allowed to kick out a, a tenant who's not paying rent, and they're talking about extending that, and you just got to wonder how long could that work, right? You know, if someone doesn't pay rent, how long can you let them stay there and, and do that part? Eventually it comes to an end. I, I, I at one point when I was before married, um, I had a college student, college come stay in my apartment. I had a pretty good size apartment. There's an extra room. And so we split the rent. And uh, he kind of went into a spiral, I think, of depression. He got kicked out of college he, got, he lost his job. He stopped paying rent. And I'm like, for a while, I'm like, okay, try to give him another chance. Eventually, I just had to kick him out, right? And, and he was aghast that when I finally did tell him that you got to leave, you got to get out of this apartment, he just couldn't believe that it had finally come. But at some point, there comes an end. So let's talk about the elements of this parable. Some of the parables Jesus told are hard to interpret sometimes of what he means. This was not one of those. It's, in fact, it says they could perceive that, that who he was talking about. So first of all, the vineyard is Israel. And the owner is God. This is taken from Isaiah 5. Actually, Jesus, you could, if you'd read Isaiah 5, it's almost the same story. God plants the vineyard of Israel, and expects that to produce good fruit. So there's no doubt in anyone's mind that that's what what it's about. God had made a covenant with the particular people, the Jewish people, the people of Israel, that they would be His. That He would bless them, protect them, He would lead them into a, the promised land, and and be their God, but then they in turn would be his people. They would follow his ways, that they would learn him, learn about him and, and know him. And and most of all, the fruit that they would bear is that they would in turn honor God and bring the knowledge of God, the light of God, to all nations. That was what God's intent was. God had made the covenant with this, the people of Israel. They are the vineyard, he's the owner. The tenants, in this case are the leaders in Jerusalem, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, those who were given charge, stewardship, over the, the people of Israel to lead them properly, the Jewish people. And then the, the, the servants, the bond servants, who the owner sends and are mistreated, those are the prophets whom God had sent over the many centuries to his people. And they were often mistreated. In, in Elijah's time, it, Elijah at one point thought he was the only one left. He thought all the other prophets had been killed, because many were. Um, he was wrong. There were other prophets, but, but they tried to kill Elijah as well. Um, and in Jeremiah, he was another prophet. They mistreated him. They, they lowered him down into a, a cistern, a well, and they, he, they, he was stuck in the mud for days until someone could finally raise him out. And so you could find all kinds of examples. And what you see in the, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is the patience of God almost to the point of foolishness. God would send servant after servant. He kept giving them another chance. And, and they might repent and come back to God for a generation, but it never seemed to last and that's the story, if you'd read the, the Old Testament Bible, it would keep you'd see that happen again and again. And then last of all, the final messenger, the final one to come from the Father, is not just another prophet. The Son is the, Jesus is the Son. And here he's answering the question, where did you get this authority? I am the Son. It's a bold claim. Right within this parable of who Jesus is and who he represents. He's not just another prophet. He is the son of of the father. And the thought of the tenants. If we kill him we will get the inheritance. Caiaphas was the high priest. And in John 11 it talks about how the Sanhedrin are debating what to do with Jesus. And here's what Caiaphas says. Um, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. See, Caiaphas and the leaders were convinced they had to kill Jesus. Otherwise, he would be so popular, he would end up bringing the Romans down upon them. They thought they could, if they held on to power, that they could save the Jewish people from destruction. Save it from the Romans. And all they had to do was get rid of Jesus. And so what did they do? They killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. It's interesting if you compare Mark's version to Matthew's version. It's just a slight change. In Mark, they kill him and throw him out of the vineyard. In Matthew and also Luke, it says they threw him out of the vineyard and then killed him. And I think it's highlighting when Jesus was taken to be executed, it says they took him out of the city walls to a place named Golgotha. So he was in Jerusalem, but he was sort of outside Jerusalem. He's outside the, the city walls where that's where he was executed. So that's, that's why I think Matthew changed it to they, kill, they threw him out and then killed him. And then the last part of the parable is the destruction of the tenants. In 70 AD, as part of the Jewish rebellion against Rome, the, the leadership of the temple and all the leaders, those who came after them, um, all these leaders would have died, been killed in the siege when the temple was destroyed. Jesus warned his own followers to flee the city before they saw that happening, when they saw the signs. Flee the city, get out of there, because this city is not going to last much longer But the temple rulers stayed to the very end. So the tenants were destroyed. Often, as as I said, people sometimes didn't understand Jesus' parables. This one they understood. It says the the leaders, it says they perceived he was talking about them. And they they said they got to arrest this guy. They got to get rid of him. They, they, They get the point right away. They know Jesus is saying... Uh, speaking against them when he, when he did this. And in the midst of that, there's this quote from Psalm 118. And I think this, this points to some interesting things. It says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus sees what's going to happen. He knows that he will be rejected. He is the cornerstone. He knows that he will be rejected and killed. He also knows that, that through his death, he will become the basis of salvation for all peoples, that God is going to build this new thing, the, the people, that, that he is going to be the keystone by which this new thing will arise. And it's pointing to God's unbelievable amazing, astounding plan of salvation that he had been working for centuries to bring about. That, that this is all part of God's vision and it started with the Jewish people. Really, it started even further back with one man, Abraham. Abraham and his descendants, the people of Israel, God chose them to be his people. And you see what had happened is humanity, mankind had so lost touch with the true and living God that, that they conceived of the gods and the poly, maybe you know your Greek mythology or that, that, the, that they didn't know God. They only had all these visions of these other gods and goddesses and, and, and they were so far from the truth that God could not just bring down a book and say, here's what I'm really like. God had to teach humanity. It was going to take him centuries to do it. And so he started with one people. And he taught them all about himself, his ways, his character, his nature. He, he chose Israel to be his people so that through him they could bring the message to humanity of what he was really like. And there are three truths that, that we see. If you want to summarize it all, the, the first one is this. There is one God who is the maker of all. Rather than a, a, the pagan system, there was all these gods that did this and that, one God who created everything. That's key to the message of Israel. The second truth is mankind, both male and female, are created in the image of God. The pagan religions, people were created to serve the gods. But in Israel, they knew we're made in God's image because we're meant to know God and be known by God. God made us in His image so we can relate to Him, and and we can know Him. And then the third truth: God calls all people to do what is right and good. In the pagan religions, the gods themselves aren't good. They they don't. There's no ethical standard for the people in them, but. But God gives His word, His Ten Commandments, He wants people to do what is right and and so He teaches that to his, to his people through the law. God gave this to Israel, so ultimately they could bear witness to it to all people, all humanity. and God was patient over the centuries, continuing to send prophets and messengers trying to guide His people in the way, till ultimately God sends his one and only Son, when the time was right. And then here's, here's the plot twist, right? When, when you finally get to God's, the ultimate expression, the ultimate messenger, His Son coming, what happens? The stone is rejected. The stone is, is the, Jesus, the Son, it, it would give His life by dying on the cross, and that was part of God's salvation plan that the Lord would set us free from the guilt and condemnation of sin as Jesus gave his life on the cross. God saw the whole thing and put it together. And now it is through his, the church, his people, those who have aligned themselves with Jesus, we become part of this new building with Jesus as the cornerstone that's built on the foundation of the, the Jewish people, the truths that they laid out, that, that now all who align themselves with Jesus, who, who fit with the cornerstone, become part of this new building of God's people that he's building in the world. The one thing I want to clarify in this is, is the tenant farmers who lost their place. You know, I will take, take the vineyard from you and give it to others. That represents the leadership of the Jewish temple and the, the, peop, the leaders in Jerusalem, it does not represent the Jewish people as a whole. The Jewish people have not been kicked out of God's plan. God still has a place for them in his, his salvation economy. First of all, they're invited, just like all of us, to, tr- to trust Jesus and become part of this, this, this building that he's doing. Um, and, and all the initial believers of the church were Jewish. All the apostles and all the... the it's only later as the message goes out to the non-Jews, that the the number of Gentiles starts to overwhelm the the number of Jews. Um, And so the Jewish people have a place. They're not kicked out. In fact, when the Bible later describes it, he says, um, Paul writes how it's like an olive tree. It's not that God starts with a whole new olive tree. Instead, he grafts non-Jews onto the original tree. That we're grafted into the people of God. And so we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets who were all Jews. And I would submit to you that the Jewish people, even those who do not believe Jesus is the Messiah, still have a place in God's economy. God is still doing something. And and here's the thing they're still bearing witness to those three truths, right? There is one God. We're made in God's image, and God calls people to do and live rightly. Without those three truths, the gospel of Jesus doesn't make any sense. Unless those three truths are established, the gospel won't take root in people because they can't understand it. And so they still bear witness to those three truths. And there is hope that it talks about in the Bible that before the end comes, there will be an inswelling of those who are ethnically Jewish back into the church to, to rejoin in God's plan. So that's the, the good news. That's the, the plan of salvation, and it is marvelous in our eyes. I want to drill down now to each of us because the truth is we are all tenants in this story. This is all about us. It's how how we respond to the coming of the true king into our life. You see, everything we have, our life, our stuff, our gifts and abilities, all we have, we have from God. He made us. We didn't do it ourselves, but we have been given stewardship of our own life For as many years as God gives us. The problem is we don't want to be stewards. We want to be the king and ruler of our own life. We want to be the owners of our life and ourself. Our natural tendency is to resist the rule of God over our life. If you wanted to drill down what is the essence of sin... It's not just doing bad things. The essence of sin is that we say to God, I decide for myself what is good and evil, what is right and wrong. God, you don't tell me what to do. I decide for myself what my life will look like. We want to make ourselves as the ruler of our own life. But when we're confronted by the gospel, the good news of Jesus, Jesus comes to us As the king, he comes to us and we have to decide are we going to shut him out and resist his rule or are we going to yield and affirm that Jesus Christ is Lord, is Lord of all and is Lord of me. On the handouts, if you you have those, I'd invite you, if not, maybe you could look at it later. I have these circles and I I want us to think about this as a picture. And so in the top circle, I want you to, you could write um, in the center box, that's who's in charge of your life, that's who's ruling, you know, what's at the center of your life. I want you to write self, or if you prefer, you could write your own name, either way. And so what fits in your life? I want you to think about this for a minute, um, even as I'm talking, you could, you could do this, or you could do it later if you prefer, but what are the things that fit into your life? If we could... Uh, the next slide, I, I kind of do some suggested ideas. And some things you could write. These things play a big part in my life. Write them big. If they're pretty minor, write them little. And I'm sure you could go far more than I did. But what are the things that you fill your life with? When we say yes to Jesus, First John 4 says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God... God abides in him and he in God. I don't have a slide for this, so don't you don't need to look up there. But what we do is, in a sense, we receive Jesus into our life. And what we tend to do though is make Jesus another little mini box that's a part of our life, right? It's a he's another part of it. And he's, yeah, I have I have work, I have family, I have Jesus. Right? I, he's another component. Of our life, The problem is, is Jesus is Lord. And he comes and he says, if I'm here, I'm here as the Lord and rightful king of your life. And what needs to happen is we need to yield the throne. Put him at the center and take ourselves out of that. So in that bottom box, write Christ at the center. 2 Corinthians says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When we put Christ at the center of our life, our life starts to take new dimensions. The things in our life that we fill it with start to look different and start to to take on a different flavor. He starts to refashion the things we care about, the things we, we do. It's not just getting rid of bad stuff and not sinning anymore. It, it's, that might be included. There might be things that should have no part in our life that he wants to ease out. But even more, he starts to refresh in our priorities and our loves. That is God's design when Christ is at the center. When he is our, our Lord. It's that picture I want you to think about. I'd, I'd like you to spend, maybe next time you, you have your prayer time Spend some time with these pictures and think about what fills your life and how Christ starts to refill it in different ways. Decide in your heart of hearts, and this is a decision we have to make daily, decide in your heart of hearts that Jesus is the rightful owner of your life. And what would he fill your life with? Here's the good news. He's better at running our life than we are. Right? He, he, when I'm in charge of my life, I keep screwing it up. He's far better at running our life than we are. So when we can yield to him, the center, there's a contentment and a peace and a joy that goes with that. Friends, can we, we together, honor Jesus as the rightful king. Can we receive him and make him the Lord, truly the Lord of our life as we walk with him day by day? Let me pray. Jesus, you are the king. We acknowledge that. Um, You are the king forever. There's no one like you. There's no one that compares with you. You're the best thing in our life. And you're not just in our life. You, You are the rightful center of our life. So Father... Jesus, teach us how to follow you and live for you and put you first. Lord, we trust that when we do that, we will experience the blessing and joy that we can't imagine now. Lord, we do this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.